Welcome to the June 2020 Wilderness and Environmental Medicine Live podcast. We're going to be interviewing Dr. Brent Ruby, who we've interviewed before on his paper on Wildland Firefighters and Nutrition that's come out in this month's journal with a few afterthoughts. This topic's timely for our summer season, where temperatures rise and where we can't be entirely sure of the ramifications in the time of COVID. So let's get to it. Wildfires can burn more than twice as hot as the surface of Venus. Their flames can reach higher than a 16-story building, create hurricane-force winds, and move twice as fast as the average person can run. How on earth do you stop something like that? We spend almost $5 billion a year fighting wildfires in the United States. That money goes to fund a battalion of firefighting forces. Air tankers and helicopters are sometimes the first to attack, dropping water to cool a fire or phosphate fertilizer to slow its spread. Elite, super-fit firefighters arrive by air. Smoke jumpers parachute in. Helitac crews rappel down to combat fires in remote, hard-to-reach places. First to arrive by ground are usually the hotshots. They're assigned to the hottest parts of the fire. They work in crews of 20, digging trenches and chopping down trees. The goal? To build a fire line free of flammable materials to stop the fire from spreading. The width of the fire line depends on what's burning. A few feet for a grass fire, much wider for a forest fire. Even the best fire lines can't stop a fire from jumping. Sometimes the conditions are too windy. It's up to the crew boss to decide where and how to build the fire line. Crews then divide the work into special roles. The spotter keeps an eye on the fire's movements. The sawyer uses a chainsaw to remove the fuel from the fire's edge. The swamper gets that material away from the fire. A crew might start a backfire to burn up any remaining fuel in the main fire's path. When the hotshot crews get stretched thin, it's time to call in reinforcements. These type two crews help hold the fire lines and put out spot fires. These might be college students on summer break, or National Guard soldiers who've been given a few days training, or even crews of prison inmates. All told, a large fire can take weeks to put out and involve thousands of firefighters. We will be talking about a very fascinating paper in the June edition of the journal entitled Total Energy Intake and Self-Selected Macronutrient Distribution During Wildland Fire Suppression. And I'm with the author, Dr. Brent Ruby from the University of Montana, who happens to be holed up in his cabin right now. Thank you, COVID. But uh, Brent, it's great to have you here. Yeah, very good to be here. Yeah, right on. And I also have for you, uh, Dr. Jamie Newberry. Jamie is my fellow here over at the University of New Mexico, Wilderness Improvisational and International Emergency Medicine. Say hi, Jamie. Good morning. It's great to be here, too. Brent, what I wanted to do before Jamie goes into some specific questions, would you please describe the main premise of the paper for those that are listening? Absolutely. So I've been chasing wildland fire crews for almost 25 years now. I can't believe that. In the process of doing that and doing all, a lot of the other studies, one thing we felt like we were falling short of is actually understanding what the what the energy intake patterns looked like and how the how fire crews 
were distributing their macronutrient intake throughout the work shift because the work shift is very it's a very unusual line of work in in terms of an occupational setting and they understand full well what the energy demands of the job typically are at about four to six thousand plus calories a day um, but it is kind of challenging for them to distribute those food choices throughout the day and throughout the shift. And so what we were interested in doing is just swooping in and doing a really deep dive into their practices and their self-selected schedule. And to do that, we needed a different technique and a more advanced technique rather than just like a food inventory or a, or a dietary um, recall approach. And so we developed a much more in-depth system with tablets and uh, one-on-one researcher to firefighter uh, subject to researcher ratio was one-to-one, which was fantastic. So we got very, very as detailed of food records as you could get and not provide prepackaged meals. This is a really fascinating paper. I'm actually particularly impressed by just how much data you were able to gather on a one-to-one basis. And I was hoping that you might be able to talk a little bit about the logistics of putting this study together. Um, You said that you'd assign a research team member to each firefighter. These weren't just pre-med students. So who were these people and how was it that you were able to just deploy research resources through the U.S.? And maybe uh, in the last minute to do the study. <laughs> yeah, the, we we started plotting the study. This data was collected during the season, what was it, the 2018 season. In order to plan that, we, we, we started out along quite a ways in advance, working with the National Technology and Development Program, which is right here in Missoula. It used to be called the Missoula Technology and Development Center. Now it's uh, the National Technology Development Program. And what that facility does is basically they evaluate all of the tools. Anything that a firefighter uses is evaluated by that center. They have a very strong engineering core, um, but they also can help us coordinate some of these research trials. And so they can build a team of, well, there's a couple of researchers in the facility there, both of which are former students of ours out of our grad program. And what they do is they they will take on firefighters on a detailed assignment and they will plug them into their team. And so this this team had uh, a number of, a couple of researchers only, and then the remainder of the data collectors were former firefighters, uh, hotshots, jumpers, repellers, so they were very familiar with the job and they're all red carded so they can go on the line with no limitations. Almost like a mini firefighter research crew, which is different than how we used to do these studies where it was just researchers. And when we would go out in the field and we would go to collect the data on the line, it was just, it's a lot more difficult because you're, you're, there's only like two of you. And even though you're red carded and even though you've you've been out with the crews, we're still kind of a nuisance on the fire line, I guess, or a low (laughs) priority more than anything. And so having firefighters, these aren't just like former firefighters. They they could go back to a fire assignment, but 
just for something different, they took on this detail. And so they were outfitted with a tablet and the tablet, what we would do is we would preload the tablet with an, a full inventory of all the food and all the food and drink that they would take out with them. So anything in their line gear packs, anything in their pockets, that was all pre-inventoried. And then when they would consume it, the tablets were, were set up with a data logging system. So when they would consume it, they would write down or they would put into the tablet what that food item was, click, and they would say, did they consume half of it, all of it, three quarters of it? And it would timestamp each eating episode. So it was a very, very detailed strategy to get real precise intake throughout the day. And because you've got a, a firefighter paired up with a firefighter, we think that that certainly helped in dampening one of those classic threats to internal validity that observation manipulates behavior. And we don't feel like that really occurred because the, the firefighters that were helping us with the data collection, they just ooze a, a different, cooler vibe than a researcher would in that situation, I suppose. Yeah, no offense to the researchers, but it's so cool that you were able to deploy people who are culturally competent to be there and, I guess, physically yeah. competent as well. You've talked a little bit about who was involved in this study. I'm kind of wondering, um, like, what particularly the wildland firefighters were equipped with um, you said that they got a stack lunch as a source of their food. What was in this lunch, and um, what were the nutritional breakdowns of what they're provided? The food system with Wildland Fire and the national catering contract that is deployed each season, recently, after we presented this report to the agency, the catering contract at the time was undergoing a pretty comprehensive review. They wanted to tighten some control on what the what was mandated in that catering contract. Not so much in terms of the total calories. The the former catering contracts have done an adequate job of providing an okay amount of total, but how it's distributed and the breakdown of the macronutrients and then different the many, many different food items, they've tightened that up quite a bit. This data does not reflect that new catering contract. Uh, this data was collected under the older one. Most fire crews will operate out of a fire camp, and that fire camp is a pretty large, incredibly well-organized and outfitted camp where they bring in large trailers that provide for the caterers. So big trailers that are moving, rolling kitchens, and they set up large tents, so it almost looks like a circus tent for sort of the dining facilities. And then they have other trailers that are communication trailers, ops trailers, mapping, fire behavior, and then, of course, they have bathroom facilities, shower facilities, sometimes they even have laundry facilities. These fire camps are set up to provide all the food that's necessary for these crews under the under the contract and so crews will typically eat breakfast it's a hot breakfast that is served by the caterers in the morning it's kind of cafeteria style they go through a food line they're provided with a plate of food they put that on a tray and then they walk into the tent and in the tent there's lots of other options there's like a cereal bar a fresh fruit bar 
food and uh, and drink options, and they basically just serve themselves on plastic paper and plastic silverware and dinnerware. And so that, and then they eat in on picnic tables. So they eat their their main breakfast meal in camp most often, and then they take with them a sack lunch on the line, and that varies depending on caterer. But that, that that sack lunch has usually a large sandwich in it, sometimes two, and then it has a whole host of prepackaged food items. Could be different bars, from granola bars to Cliff Bar type snacks, peanuts, box juices, maybe a apple or an orange. Yeah, just a wide range of prepackaged, almost snack type foods. And then they disperse, they eat those throughout the day. A lot of our other research has really tried to push them to eat the food in a calculated way where they distribute that intake more or less evenly throughout the day rather than the whistle blows at noon and everyone sits down and eats their huge sack lunch. We try to encourage them to distribute it about every 60 to 90 minutes depending on how the operation unfolds. So they're eating more like an, uh, an endurance athlete would consume foods. And then when they come back into camp, then of course they have their dinner. And for the most part, the majority of the calories in the total energy intake are on those bookend meals because it's a little bit more enticing to have a hot meal than it is to continually eat out of sack lunch. And if, if firefighters are gonna complain about the food, most often they're gonna complain about the sack lunch. We are trying to change the culture surrounding that sack lunch in that we don't, we're trying to get away from people calling it a sack lunch. We would rather have people call it their shift provision. So all the food and supplemental needs to support the operation for 12 to 14 hours when they're outside of camp away from those hot meal bookends. So it sounds like these are MREs. Are these the types of constipating bricks that people would normally associate with MREs? Uh, yes and no. So the MRE, <laughs> unfortunately, is widely used with by the fire agency because it is convenient. It does have heating element so that you can potentially provide hot food. Most of the time, firefighters do not take the time to use that unless they're going to be stuck out on the line or they can't come back into the camp for a meal. Most often, if they, if they can't come back into the fire camp for meals, then they will use MREs. Sometimes they'll use eat some of the components from MREs throughout the day. But in general, I would say they try to avoid the MRE as much as they can in favor of more fresh foods. Not that prepackaged food bars and things like that are are fresh food, but the, the products in the MREs really, they have minimal usefulness on the fire line as they have minimal usefulness these days within the military. They're still in circulation, but there are a whole lot better options that folks at Eucerium out at Natick have uh, developed, and that's the first strike ration. It facilitates more frequent eating episodes throughout a shift because the food is packaged in ways that makes it more convenient for the user, the operator, the military warfighter or the firefighter to deploy every 60 to 90 minutes. That's, that's how that's designed. And the MRE is not designed that way. 
So what is in a first strike ration? Well, the first strike ration, I mean, you could probably Google first strike ration and, and see some pictures. We did a we did a study with Eucerium years ago when they first rolled out the first strike ration. And the the reasons for it was instead of one like hot entree and some other things, smaller food items that the MRE had to had in place. The MRE is much more designed for a sit down. I'm going to eat all of this in one sitting. I'm going to get my rock and I'm going to put my heating element at the right angle. Even though I don't carry a protractor with me in the field, I can estimate it and I'm going to try to heat it. And then it's it's designed for more of a sit down end of the day. Uh, I'm going to eat this all at one time kind of uh, meal. Whereas the first strike ration does have a, might have a smaller sandwich. It might have multiple bars. It has some mix, drink mixes that you can put into canteens of water. Uh, it might have some crackers. It might have some dried fruit. It might have like some jerky or some sort of a food bar along those lines. But it's got 10 to 12 components within the package rather than the five to six that an MRE would have. So just designed to facilitate more frequent eating episodes. Okay, guys, I had to Google this. And if you look under mremountain.com, the first strike ration is an all-new menu packed 2019, best by 2022. Then it says you are purchasing one, yes, one USA military first strike ration, which is 24 hours worth of ready-to-eat food, including toilet paper. And just looking at it, it looks like the classic MRE in a little bit of a different packaging. It's a compact eat-on-the-move assault ration designed for short durations of highly mobile, high-intensity combat operations. And it weighs only 3.5 pounds, so it's much lighter and less bulky than the usual MRE while packing twice the calories. How many calories? 3,000 plus calories. How do you eat it? All components of the ration are eat out of the hand, eat on the move type of foods that require no or little preparation versus the classic MRE where you have to put it on some sort of a prepackaged heating element included in the MRE. And how long will it last? Three years at 80 degrees Fahrenheit. So, you can have a menu one, bacon cheddar, breakfast sandwich, pepperoni pocket sandwich, or you could get menu two, Italian pocket sandwich, chicken chunks, zapple sauce, whatever it is. There's almonds, there's hot sauce, there's a little beverage. And here's what's cool. There's a caffeinated cinnamon gum in some of these. Then there's an energy gel mixed berry. So definitely this looks a little bit better or maybe even quite a lot better. I haven't tried any of these, but yum yum. They're only... 40 bucks or so, so I'll have to do the price point check a little bit later. You can do it yourself as well. But if you don't like that, you can always opt for the Russian Mountain Ration Special Forces 24-hour combat pack. That is, if you can read Russian and who knows what's in there. Although this particular Russian type of MRE boasts about 5,000 calories. Some of the favorite MREs I've tried are the French MREs because you get a little glass of wine with that, which is totally cool. And the Indian MREs, which of course has a lot of curry. So anyways, knock yourself out. Good luck. You mentioned that something like 80% of the wildland firefighters in the study had brought in accessory food items that weren't provided by the caterers. I'm wondering if there's yeah. any... You you know, any unifying features and those food stuffs that people are, are packing in and taking such care to ensure that they bring with them. What are they bringing? I mean, as you can imagine, in today's 
age, diet is like the new religion in a, in a lot of ways. And there are a lot of, there are a lot of tightly held beliefs that just because it's fire season, those don't go away. It's not like the old days or what seems like the old days when we, when I started with fire, you ate what you ate, you got what you got and nobody complained that much. But now diets are so much more specialized and, oh, I, I don't eat this and I try to stay away from this. And it's very difficult for a picky eater to work effectively on the fire line unless they bring in some of their own food items that are specialty items that they, they believe contribute greatly to their health and well-being, I suppose. Most crews have an operational budget that allow them to buy uh, – it could be like, well, sometimes they buy MREs. A lot of times they buy real high-quality backpacking meals, dehydrated meals for situations where they, where they get stuck out on the line. And so out of a cruise budget, they will stockpile certain food items, certain bars, certain uh, meals, and a wide variety of food components, which the marketplace is flooded with possibilities. And fire crews are always asking me, what's, what, should we, what should we put in our food boxes? Well, what do you guys like? I mean, the best way to ensure that you're going to eat and get the food, the nutrients that you need, is to include food items that you, that you desire uh, out there. And so their experience should never be, I never undervalue their experience and what they feel like they need and what works for them conveniently and logistically, uh, I support almost all of those, their, their choices. Using that budget, they can pre-purchase items. And in the catering contract right now, what they're allowed to do is if they deploy, let's say they deploy 75 uh, dehydrated meals in, in a few days on an assignment, they can bill that to the incident and be reimbursed as a crew for those supplemental food items that they have used. Uh, because in a sense, the incident should be paying for all of that stuff. And so crews can be, their budgets can be reimbursed if they use some of that stockpile on that particular incident. Some individuals prefer things that do not qualify for reimbursement. And some of those might be more, more on the lines of supplements and things like that, not necessarily foods. The reason why they have difficulty reimbursing everything is, you, as you can imagine, there can be some abuses to the food policy. And people might say, oh, I'm just going to stockpile all this beef jerky and then I'll have it for hunting season or whatever. But in general, their crews are incredibly resourceful and respectful and they don't do that for the most part. I was wondering if um, you could maybe talk about what kind of athlete is comparable to a wildland firefighter. You know, mm. you mentioned endurance and aerobic capability, and there's obviously some very heavy manual labor, but also just the demands of being able to actually hike to the fire line. So in the wilderness world, like who would quote most closely approximate what the, what the uh, needs of a wildland firefighter are? I've described the men and women on the fire line as sort of the, they're kind of like the Swiss army knife of the occupational world, I suppose. They're definitely on the lines of a special forces operator. So they have tactical 
they have endurance, they have strength components. They're like a tactical ultra enduro power athlete. <laughs> so all of the things that some athletes have, they bring a wide variety of needs. So there's obviously a, a large aerobic component because of the load carriage. And some of the studies that we've done with them, we've documented the, um, in, in fact, it was a wilderness environmental medicine paper a couple of years back that looked at the, the using GPS capabilities, we could track and estimate aerobic demands of the job. And the highest aerobic demands typically happen uh, during the ingress hike into the fire, the hike with a, with a pack and all their gear, and they have to hike to the fire line. Once they're at the fire line, then their digging line, or they're using a, a, a pretty hefty chainsaw, or throwing brush or moving things. And so there's, a, there's an obvious sort of tactical, almost calisthenic-like demand, like a lot of activities or a lot of tactical athletes. When CrossFit came out, of course, there was a large group of wildland firefighters that thought, hey, this is a good way to train for fire. And there's a lot of different thoughts on what's the best way to train for fire. And I think one of the most important things is to provide, provide crews with the baseline information so they know what the job requires from sort of objective markers and measurements, but not to take the creativity out of the mix because it's like having somebody come in as a coach that's never really done the activity. I don't, I think you have to have faith in the crews and their experience that lends them to, they're going to be able to wind themselves up and decide how hard to train when they're carrying a pack up a hill because they know what the job requires. So the challenge is what we found that one of the biggest challenges is Here's all the metabolic demands. We can identify those. It's really hard to measure sort of the anticipated strength demands that the job requires. There are no set standards for strength standards in the agency. But because of the diversity of movement patterns and the diversity of energy systems that are involved in the job, that makes it even more challenging to ensure that crew members are fed the right way. So not to beat to the punchline of the paper, but are people actually making their caloric goals based on best estimates for energy requirements? I think the, the most interesting part of the paper, uh, from my perspective, I was just eatingly happy with the, the, how well the methodology worked. In the review process, of course, reviewers say, oh, well, yeah, that's pretty interesting that you monitored food intake. And I'm like, no, no, no. It's not like a food inventory that you're asking them to write down on a paper. The, the methodology is far more precise. It's almost on the level of, well, it is. It's like a field version of a USDA dietary controlled study where they provide, a clinician provides prepackaged meals and they consume that. And they weigh everything that they don't consume to quantify total energy intake. This is almost on the same level as of precision as that. And so that is one of the things I'm most taken or most proud of with the team and that in the paper. 
But because of that, we were able to break down the diet and the intake into different categories. And it's, it's difficult to do that with the data analysis because everyone's eating. It's, there's an infinite number of combinations that people could choose. One person could eat something every hour. One person might only eat one food item in the morning and then a larger sort of more traditional lunch type snack and then one, one snack in the afternoon. And so some of the most compelling stuff is not that the crews are, are getting an inadequate amount of food. It's more the way that it is deployed and distributed throughout the day warrants some education and some suggestions to upregulate the total number of eating episodes throughout, especially on the fire line. In this study, it's only about four or a little bit more eating episodes on average, and that is low compared to what our prior research has suggested or has demonstrated when we upregulate the eating episodes or we provide foods that enable an increased frequency of eating on the line, people do more work. And they answer questionnaires about fatigue and mood states and stuff. Those appear more favorable. And so when you consider the standard fire orders and fight fire aggressively with safety and so on, we think that when, when the eating episodes are upregulated to more like six to eight, an individual has an opportunity to maintain vigilance a little bit better or a lot better out on the line. So I think the most compelling thing with the data is the, is the number of eating episodes, that being low, not a big difference across males and females. But the intervals between the episodes, instead of being almost, well, about two hours, that should be shortened to about 60 minutes to 90 minutes to ensure that there are more eating episodes. And one of the hardest things with this kind of work, it's, it's different than running an Ironman or doing an Ironman, where the Ironman athlete is just, they know what's going to happen. They don't know how well they're going to feel but they, they know how hard the job is, and it really doesn't deviate much from that unless something goes terribly wrong. It's more of a steady state. This activity is not at all steady state. And they start the operation in the morning with a general plan, but the fire behavior has a mind of its own, and that can shift. And I always tell crews, that it's very important to make sure that they're on schedule with enough eating episodes because 420 on the fire line is very different than 420 in Seattle or Portland or wherever it's legal. It becomes increasingly dangerous late in the afternoon, right around four o'clock when the wind shifts and the, the environmental conditions are pretty become pretty aggressive. And if crews have not planned ahead and they've not distributed those that caloric intake effectively, when it comes time for them to really make critical decisions and move like they need to move and upregulate their fire line tactics, they're not going to be ready for that. Now, this isn't published in the paper, but I'm kind of wondering if there's any supplemental data. You mentioned data on people's mood and their subjective feelings of how well they're doing. I wonder mm -hmm. if there's any correlation between their carbohydrate, fat, and protein breakdown and relative energy deficit to, you know, how the firefighter is feeling, you know, in terms of their physical preparedness and their, their mental state sort of throughout the day. And if you have any uh, 
background information on that. Yeah, we've tried to monitor that in some of our prior studies where we manipulated the number of eating episodes or we provided the first strike ration versus the traditional MRE approach. And some of those mood states or kind of like, I use the term loosely, but cognitive function oriented testing, that's been one of our biggest stumbling blocks as far as a measurement technique to use under these conditions, which it doesn't seem like it would be that hard to do, but it's, we've tried little tablets back when Palm Pilots were a thing, we've tried Palm Pilots. It's just really difficult to capture that information. We're hoping that maybe this season, this season is gonna be very, very unique for crews because fire doesn't care about a virus and yet their tactical maneuvers are going to have to change as a function of this virus being such a such an issue so how they're fed and so on we're we're hoping to deploy a more virtual data collection model this year which we've never done before but now i mean even more so now than ever before most crew members have a smartphone with them at all times and oftentimes the smartphone can be an integral part of the communication plan on the fire. Now they have their own radios and everything, but we're thinking we can deploy this virtual data collection module. And in that we can build uh, validated questionnaires, surveys, measurement techniques that we haven't tried to use in the past. And using that sort of that virtual approach, it also will minimize the contact time between researchers and fire crews, which in the era of social distancing and human subjects research, that could be really novel uh, if we can if we can pull that off, especially in this setting. And so we hope to look at not so much measures of cognitive function, but measures of stress and um, both acute and cumulative stress that the season brings and how that might be different because operations will be happening in this COVID world. But in some of our past studies, we have looked at some mood states, measures, and um, attention scores, but it hasn't worked very well as a measurement technique. Ah. No, thank you. Why you no eat mammoth? Oh, uh, me doing this thing, uh, this little Pleisto diet thing right now. What that? It's stupid fad diet. No, no, no. It just diet where me only eat thing Australopithecus ate in early Pleistocene era. That sounds very restrictive. No, no, it's not so bad. Uh, me can still eat raw fruit, vegetables, and tubers, and small lizard. Can Ugg eat early ancestor of cow? No, that not part of diet. Can Ugg eat small stones? No, not that. Can Ugg eat big lizard? <gasps> No, guys, rule's very simple, okay? Me only eat fruit, vegetables, tubers, and small lizards. Are ergogenic aids being used? Yeah, there's, like a lot of occupations, when energy drinks sort of came out on the market, they were, wildland fire was a hotbed for them. And those, are, those they haven't really subsided that much, but, I mean, they're not, like, obsessive about those. The one constant on the fire line is, coffee. I mean, they're, you're never going to get rid of coffee. It's not, it's not wonderful, but at least it's coffee. And they use that, of course, religiously. 
But if you don't get your caffeine that way, oftentimes it's not uncommon to see people have an occasional energy drink, but it's, it's less and less common for those to be abused. As far as other supplements, we have not done any data collection or survey to see what commonplace supplements are being used uh, on, by fire crews, but things like creatine, monohydrate, some individuals think that's going to be to their benefit. It's probably not. But, but really the most effective supplements that people take out on the line would be powdered drink mixes, et cetera, that they can mix with the canteen. I think it's a totally fascinating subject that like uh, that crosses over into a lot of different areas for human performance and sort of an austere environment and how we maximize our work output and um, ensure the safety and well-being of people who are on the front lines of firefighting. I'm kind of wondering if, you know, maybe you have like a, a brief summary for what the best recommendations would be for this kind of work. You mentioned increased feeding episodes and ensuring like energy balance doesn't get too far behind in the late afternoon hours when it's more dangerous. Are there things that people should be carrying with them? as a short-term solution mm. to supplement their, their carbs or anything that you might have to add for the field? We're trying to put together educational material around this paper and lots of the other ones that we've done with uh, that focus on dietary intake. It is very expensive to feed these firefighters each day. It's encroaching on about $50 a day to feed them using the food catering contract and the caterer. In a lot of uh, some of our other studies we've done with recreational athletes, our goal with describing or providing nutritional information is to try to uncomplicate the message as much as possible. In this fairly large study where individuals self-select from non-optimized food sources, the distribution of macronutrients is okay. They're getting enough protein in terms of the gram per kilogram recommendations, if not maybe a little bit more. The one thing that tends to fall through the cracks in their diets is not so much what they get, but how, they're, how they distribute it. And also complex carbohydrates can sometimes be in short supply, which is not too problematic at breakfast. It's not too problematic throughout the day, as long as they're getting in the realm of 25 to 40 grams of carbohydrate in those different eating episodes, at least the majority of them. Um, but in the aftermath of the work shift, if it's been a really aggressive work shift and they've depleted muscle carbohydrate tremendously, that doesn't come back instantaneously. And we have noticed that the availability and access to carbohydrate sources that are going to facilitate glycogen, muscle glycogen recovery, those are displaced by other food options that like steak and big thing of ribs and things that aren't going to contribute to muscle recovery per se. But those, I think those are the two biggest take-home items. The one thing I would like to say to crews is, Try to increase your eating episodes to six to eight in a shift and do that by distributing your sandwich. Like one of the things I wanted so badly in the new catering contract is I wanted it to specify that the sandwich had to be cut in half 
even better if it was cut into fours because that way it's just something about cutting a sandwich in half or in quarters that you're going to eat it that way. And so we want to get the message across that number one, eating episodes six to eight times a day. Number two, if it's a hard charging shift, you have to decrease the frequency between those eating episodes so that you can't, you're, you're supplementing the carbohydrate that you're depleting from the muscle. You're supplementing that with exogenous sources. Third take home is if the shift has been aggressive and you feel depleted, you have to focus on high carbohydrate intake in that post-shift period to enable muscle recovery. So you're ready the next go around. We've taken muscle samples from crews before and after shifts, and we've noticed that their muscle glycogen doesn't go down dramatically like you would see in a, in a typical depletion trial in the lab. But when they're eating MREs, they start the day with a very low muscle glycogen. And that, that's scary. So you don't want that to happen if you, can, at all, if you can control it. Thank you, Brent, for your availability. And this is a great paper and hopefully can make some changes. It's, it's the highest honor of my research career to be able to work with these teams. I did not know that I was going to go down this path when I started in FIRE. I have had an enormous amount of fun and I just hold these, these teams. I just, they mean a lot to me. I hope the very best for their season and of course their safety and anything that our research can do to add little pockets of evidence to support some favorable policy changes. That's, that is excellent as well. Excellent. Okay. Well, I guess we're done. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. That's all all folks. Ah, such a great discussion. Well, thank you so much, Jamie, for these excellent questions. Thank you, Brent, for just the excellent insight that you give us with respect to this very important topic. And after our conversation, I just wanted to put out a very interesting thing that Brent has done during this COVID time where you get to sit in your cabin and muse about new projects. He is actually creating a new website, which is called Rango, W-R-A-N-G-O, and Banjo, B-A-N-J-O, Rango and Banjo.com. Look it up. It's going to be a new children's book about friendship, teamwork, and adventure on the fire line. And what Brent has had to do is had to learn how to do posting on the internet, how to do an internet website. So if some of you are wondering, gee, how do I invent myself during COVID and during this potential lockdown? Well, what you do is you do like Brent, if you're able to go out in the backwoods of Montana and just reinvent yourself. What I've been doing is I've been taking up ukulele and guitar, which has been really cool. Maybe it's going to be computer programming, whatever it is, just find a way to reinvent yourself because even though this is a big drag, there's always positive linings. So whatever you do, do something that'll make you better in the future. Here's some afterthoughts. The point of this podcast is not to do an exhaustive discussion on protein outside of wildland firefighting or energetics or carbs. And since there aren't a lot of studies on the subject, it might not be entirely accurate to make much comments. But 
Here's an interesting discussion from Kirk Sick et al. in the International Society of Sports Nutrition, who in 2017 gave a review regarding the timing of macronutrients in reference to healthy exercising adults, and in particular, highly trained individuals on exercise performance and body composition. Now, whether or not these wildland firefighters are constantly working out, who knows? It might be helpful for some of the endeavors that you might undertake, given that probably not 100% of you listening to this are wildland firefighters. The timing of energy intake and the ratio of certain ingested macronutrients might enhance recovery and tissue repair, augment muscle protein synthesis, and improve mood states following a high-volume or intense exercise bout. Endogenous glycogen stores are maximized by following a high-carbohydrate diet, 8 to 12 grams of carbs per kilo per day, 8 to 12 grams per kilo per day. Plus, these stores are depleted most by high-volume exercise. Now, if rapid restoration of glycogen is required, less than 4 hours of recovery time, then the following strategies are to be considered. Aggressive carb refeeding, 1.2 grams per kilo per hour, with a preference towards carbohydrate sources that have a high, greater than 70 glycemic index. The addition of caffeine, 3 to 8 milligrams per kilogram, and or combining carbohydrates, at least 0.8 to 1 gram per kilo per hour, with a protein source of 0.2 to 0.4 grams per kilo per hour. Extended or greater than 60-minute bouts of high intensity, greater than 70% of VO2 max, that's a loose term, but anyways, that type of exercise challenges fuel supply and fluid regulation. So carbohydrates should be consumed at a rate of 30 to 60 grams of carbs per hour in a 6-8% to carbohydrate electrolyte solution. That's about 6-12 to fluid ounces in that container. Every 15 minutes... Throughout the entire exercise bout, particularly in those exercise bouts that go beyond 70 minutes. When carb delivery is inadequate, adding protein can help increase performance, stave off muscle damage, promote euglycemia, and facilitate glycogen resynthesis. Carbohydrate ingestion throughout resistance exercise, like lifting, using multiple exercises, targeting all major muscle groups, has been shown to promote euglycemia, and higher glycogen stores. Consuming carbs solely or in combination with protein during resistance exercises increases muscle glycogen stores, ameliorates muscle damage, and facilitates greater acute and chronic training adaptation. Meeting the total daily intake of protein, preferably with evenly spaced protein feedings about three hours during the day every three hours, should be viewed as a primary area of emphasis for exercising individuals. Taking essential amino acids, about 10 grams, either free form or part of a protein bolus of approximately 20 to 40 grams, maximally stimulates muscle protein synthesis. And up to 3 grams of leucine slash chain amino acids can help. Pre- and post-exercise nutritional interventions like carbs and a protein or protein alone may operate as an effective strategy to help increases in strength and improvements in body composition. Now, Of course, these wildland firefighters are not necessarily interested in body composition per se, but it's telltale anyways to listen to this. The size and timing of a pre-exercise meal might impact the extent to which post-exercise protein feeding is required. 
Post-exercise ingestion about two hours post of high-quality protein stimulates robust increases in muscle protein synthesis. And taking protein like casein 40 grams prior to sleep can acutely increase muscle protein building. That concludes our Wilderness and Environmental Medicine live podcast from Wilderness and Environmental Medicine, the official journal of the Wilderness Medical Society. Copyright Wilderness Medical Society, published by L. Severe. Don't forget to complete the CME questions at www.wms.org under Members. And drop us a line at wemlive.wms.org. Be safe and talk to you next time.